Hello and welcome back to Top 5 Everything, totally subjective but objectively correct rankings of movies, music, books, boats, ballroom dances of the 20th century and the moves that made them. The foxtrot, the rumba, the Argentine tango. Today, however, <laughs> we're talking about family. Families come in all sorts of shapes, sizes and configurations. The Kardashian family, the Manson family, Sly and the Family Stone. But perhaps the most famous and most beloved family of all time is The Simpsons. To discuss and dissect The Family Simpson and their fellow townsfolk, we have today the inimitable Caroline O'Donoghue. Caroline is an author and podcaster with four novels on the shelves and two more coming down the pipe, who has somehow also found the time to talk bollocks about cartoons with me for an hour today. <laughs> Caroline, hello. What an intro! Thank you for having me. Uh, my my favourite podcast, I think, apart yes. from my own. Yes. So, let's start with a little bit of uh, autobiography. What is your relationship to The Simpsons, Caroline, and what do they mean to you? Well, I think my relationship is the same as anyone of our generation, which is that they were the thing that were on Sky One at six o'clock every night. So they really do represent that kind of um, either like pre-dinner, pre like homework done, an hour till dinner kind of thing. Um, and it's just sort of the place where me and my brother, uh, we just marinate for an hour or so. And then I remember very clearly, like my, it would, there would, it would generally be two episodes between six and seven, mm -hmm. wouldn't it? Like a new one and an old one. On Sunday, it would be a new one and an old right, one. Yeah, but I think yeah. generally there was a double bill every night, mm -hmm. um, which is just, I mean, what an embarrassment of riches to grow up on, really. Uh -huh. Uh, and I remember my dad would come home every night at about, you know, 6.25 or whatever, and he'd see it on, and he would just sigh, and the fucking Simpsons again, you know? <laughs> just like, and I, I often think about that, like, of our our father's generation, and both of us came from the kind of families where uh, mum stayed at home and dad came home, and, you know, between, sometime between six and seven. And what they saw of our lives must have been so depressing to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, I slave away all yeah. day, and I come home to a bunch of ugly, ugly children. <laughs> Sitting around eating crisps and watching some some ugly cartoon. Yeah, yeah, exactly, totally. And I think he was definitely one of the many adults of that generation who thought that like TV was rotting our brains first of all, but that The Simpsons was the jewel in that rot. <laughs> Do you know what right, I mean? Yeah. It started from this poisonous thing and it worked outwards. Mm -hmm. And it, it's funny because it reminds me of um, because now I think everyone looks back on that generation of episodes and that would have been like the golden era that everyone refers to of sort of between season two and season nine. Um, and, you know, some of the most deftly written um, comedy, but also some of the most uniquely crafted plots and individual psychologies of any TV ever kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I remember when we were growing up, it was like a genuinely controversial thing because... First of all, because it was a cartoon and children were watching it, but it dealt with sort of mature themes and, and mature references. Uh, and nobody could quite square the circle in their head of like, oh, they're, they're watching cartoons, but it's not Tom and Jerry or it's not, you know, whatever, SpongeBob SquarePants. It's something that mm -hmm. seems very adult and yeah. it's frightening to me. There was one specific episode which was a cause of a lot of uh, controversy and drama in our house whenever it would come on, which is the episode where... Uh, Homer and Marge like rediscover their intimacy yes! with each other yes! and they're basically like just like shagging at a golf course and it's unbelievable now that I think about and, it and, and, and every single time that one would be uh, you would like every single time because my parents my, my family did end up 
watch it sitting down and watching The Simpsons yeah. together an awful lot. But every single time it would it, it would suddenly dawn on like my dad that that was the, it was this one again. They yeah. would suddenly be like, no, kids, out, like, hands over eyes and ears. And, and he used to get very, very angry, I think, very, very defensive of the kind of the bubble, the, the, yeah. the, the, uh, the, the sexless, uh, sin, sinless bubble that he had cr- tried to sort of maintain for yes. his family. And then these, these, these awful yellow family. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, awful. Yeah, I think about that episode all the time. And like, obviously, when we were kids, mm-hmm. our relationship was like, oh my god, they're they're naked in a lot of it. And there's all these kind of gags of them standing in front of weather vanes and all that kind of stuff. And they end up like hanging off a like a like a blimp or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> totally. And and I remember it so well now. Where it, like it begins where they kind of realize they haven't had sex in a long time or whatever, and they try and go for it, but the spark is sort of gone because they're just two people who are very used to each other, mm-hmm. and uh, they go to a bed and breakfast, and it's it's. I've had this experience before. I remember writing about it where I was um, sent to a kind of a quote-unquote romantic B&B kind of mm-hmm. thing as a press trip. And I remember me and Gavin being like, everything around here is telling us to have sex and makes us not want to do it. Yeah, yeah. And so whenever I see that scene now, I'm like, oh, I totally get it. <laughs> and then they sort of discovered that what they what's really reigniting the thrill is is the idea of getting caught, which is such an advance. That's re- it's really, is it's scandalous, actually. Yeah, yeah. Like, I understand why parents were freaking out but then it's it seems so the show seems so naive when you compare it to what came later which is the family guys in the south park so yeah. that but i think because uh it was a kind of um the, the simpsons was always was always on yeah in the home uh, i think it it introduced a lot of people of our generation to an awful lot of concepts not just sexual yeah. things like that but political certainly references to things and a kind of yeah like, you can, if you were to like write down all of the references to various things that are in any sort of given Simpsons episode, you'd basically have a day's worth of uh, of, of research into all different yeah. kinds of worms to do. I would kind of love that to get any sort. I'm sure somebody's done because there's been so much data analysis around the Simpsons because there's so much data to go with of like yeah of spider diagramming like School yeah. of Rock blackboard style. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all yeah. the references that are made in a single episode mm-hmm. and like many of them I still don't understand. You know when I watch them. Yeah. Uh, like I always think of uh, that scene when Mr. Burns and the puppies, a hundred and something greyhounds or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. where he's like, uh, "Look at him standing and walking, standing and walking like mm-hmm. a little Rory Calhoun." <laughs> it's like <laughs> I still don't know who Rory Calhoun is, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and and all those weird references that uh, sometimes you get them later in life and sometimes you just never will. There's something like um, when George W. Bush came into power. Yeah. In in, uh, in the what, what two thousand, I think. I hope that's right because otherwise that would be very embarrassing. Mm. It's it's two thousand, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> the, even as a ten year old, I already had context for who he was because he was the son of the guy who moved yes. in next to Homer and March. Yeah, Barb, one of the boys, wants, and it's like yeah, the <laughs> yeah, and he's already there as a cardboard cutout. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Matt. Yeah. So I think the role that Simpsons plays for. Certainly for, uh, for, for you and I and a lot of people of our generation is not just as entertainer but as mm. educator and as basically a gateway to uh, just, just like a, a, yeah. a, a, an infinite corridor of different areas of, uh, of, of culture, of history, of everything. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I was going to say this till the end, but my sort of my summary of The Simpsons really is it's the place where you go to find out what everybody already knows. Mm. You know what I mean? It's this thing of like, how do we, how does anybody of our generation know 
about Brown University. Yeah, like the Brown is the uh, is the worst Ivy League university. Yeah, exactly. And uh, what else? Like, there's like, so much. All this. We all grow up and we receive subliminally without really knowing why we know it. All these kind of ambient cultural facts, mm-hmm. like the idea of um, the idea of an old sea captain kind of thing. No, no one of our generation has read Moby Dick. No, that character is coming from that tradition of literature and like Robinson Crusoe and Treasure Island and stuff. We are too young to really be in touch with those primary sources, mm-hmm. but the kind of the root characters and the root ideas and themes of those things get distilled into the Simpsons and all these little side characters, you know? And that's how we hold on to those references. Mm-hmm. Like we don't, there's something, as you know, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, big drag fan. And drag does the same thing for me. It's the thing of if we don't make these references, we lose these references. And like, if some, you know, elderly queen isn't mm-hmm. making references to Joan Crawford, Mommy Dearest and Betty Davis, then that's a whole segment of queer uh, mm-hmm. reference points that just goes down the toilet. And I think Simpsons does a similar thing. It, it seems to me, actually, that um, one, maybe one of the defining characteristics of the most important, of, 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 of the most sort of important 20th century art is its sort of... Re- is its references, and they end up being. I, I think, you know, I always try and mention Bob Dylan at least once in, yeah. uh, in these things. And but, but a Bob Dylan song is the same. It's you know, it's Shakespeare and T. S. Eliot wrestling in the alley with Mae West, and you know, it's yeah. and, yeah, and yeah. it's um, and, and it's all this stuff. And so, and it does feel like that's a kind of that that's one way you could define twentieth century art as being kind of an encyclopedia of everything that's come before, and a kind of skewering or parodying of. Of, yeah, of the history of all the culture that led up to it. Yeah, completely. Um, and there is this thing of like 20th century being the first truly multimedia, mass media century, right? Of like there being just so... Like, if you're thinking previous to that, you know, you're talking like Victorian political cartoons and, <laughs> and, and books that are hard to print and hard to publicize. And like even in the Victorian era, there was a lot of stuff going around, but it was limited and also limited to the people who could get it. But the 20th century is something that will always be remembered for being the first kind of mass media time, right? Mm. And the fact that all this, there's so much of it and it's all overlapping on each other and referencing each other and tying itself in knots around each other. And now the idea of referencing something is quite easy to us. But uh, I think the density with which Simpsons referred to so many things is pretty amazing. While still essentially being a show about character and comedy and wit and Mm -hmm. story. Well, that's the really remarkable thing about, uh, exactly as you say, how dense and rich it is, while still never, uh, uh, never compromising on character and story. And the story, the plotting is so sort of like, like top tier, sort of like uh, expert level. Um, how, how something can be so tight and be like 23 minutes long and have a whole story and a whole resolution and everything. Emotional arcs and everything, yeah. Precisely, and yet still, and we were, we've been watching a few episodes while you've been staying with me of like, start from the maddest places. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we were watching an episode earlier on um, and it was about when Bart takes a road trip with Martin and Nelson and Milhouse. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, the whole, and the whole reason that begins is because it's about to be spring break or half term or whatever. Skinner... Skinner's, like, an administrative error means that his holiday has to begin a day later or else the airline will charge him $800 to change his flight. And so he cl- he calls a 
go to work with your parents day, which means that Bart ends up at the DMV and makes himself a fake driving license and Lisa ends up in the nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. And then we have the whole story of like him having a driver license and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, it's always that thing of like, how did we get here? Mm -hmm. And how did we get here in what felt like quite a natural way, even though it was bizarre, you know? And and I think uh, another thing that that uh, that particular episode exemplifies is the also the the darkness or the uh, the adultness that is also kind of uh, that that is threaded through it because that episode is sort of it's it's you know fu- fundamentally a kind of delinquent coming of age story yeah. in the in the in the uh, you know yeah in the tradition of for instance a stand by me and oh. there's just that one shot where they pick up the hitchhiker yes. And the hitchhiker, it just has one line. It just like, it's, you know, smash cuts the, the hitchhiker being in the thing. And he just says, uh, I didn't feel like I was rehabilitated, but I guess they needed the extra bed. And it just cuts. And so you could, it's like a, a throwaway kind of got darkly funny line. Yeah. But also it's kind of a, like, is this where Bart's going? You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like, so mad. Like they're so, it's so nothing. And that's it. I think um, you can always judge a great artist by what they're willing to throw away. Like, the, mm. the idea of that, like, you would... like Because I think, you know, if those writers, let's say they were all in their mid-30s um, in, the, in the early 90s, which means they would have all come up in the 60s and the 70s, which would have been the great sort of, like, the hitchhiking era of America, where yeah. kids were just fucking getting into cars and, mm-hmm. and having these weird experiences, and it was kind of the beginning of a latchkey generation. And you would get these hitchhiker stories, yeah. and they were terrifying, and it was scary. Mm-hmm. And, like, but to pack all of that into just sort of one sentence that is really quite chilling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, next to this whole thing of, like, these boys getting ice cream or whatever. Yeah. It's just like I just I can't believe like to have all of that in this one sentence and then just throw it away. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. there's, there's nothing about the hitchhiker again. <laughs> <laughs> so we've probably already started to um, we already started to touch upon this, but so what to you makes a great episode of The Simpsons? That it's uh, what can the show achieve at its best? I think it has to be this. It has to be this bar chart with these twin lines. Mm-hmm. That, and one of those lines is um, is bar chart and line graph is what I mean. Mm-hmm. Two lines, and um, one of them is satire and the other is sincerity. And they have to when one is peaking, the other is troughing. Kind of thing is what yeah. happens, you know. And like uh, I think one of the one of the greatest episodes ever, and nobody will disagree with me. I think is one called Lisa's substitute, mm-hmm. um, which is when Dustin Hoffman plays her substitute teacher. And it's this like really deeply emotional thing of like Lisa, f- we kind of realize how alone she is in her world because like mm-hmm. she's this really bright kid, but like there's nobody one around her who can relate to or respond to her, and she finally meets that person, and it's like this gorgeous like platonic love affair kind of thing, and then at the same time you have kind of Homer, sort of satirizing what it means to be a smart person going to the museum, and it's like it's all that kind of stuff, and it's really yeah. funny, but then when those things clash, the sort of like Homer making fun of highbrow sort of shit and not getting it right. And it's like, it's a kind of a take on pretensions and stuff. And then it sort of peaks in this incredible moment where, you know, he's not taking the fact that our substitute has left seriously enough. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you sir are a baboon. <laughs> and, and she runs up to her room and this bit that really ends me, which many things in the Simpsons do, which is, um, you know, he he goes into her room and he's trying to make it up to her. 
oh god I'm getting upset <laughs> and they have there and he's like playing with her things and he doesn't really know how to speak to her because it's something that the show comes back to a lot is that Homer and Lisa don't really know how to speak to each other I either, think it's, though. It, it's the fundamental relationship of the show oh, I mean yeah. there's so many there's so I mean, many but it's, it's a big one so effective yeah because Marge and Lisa are so simpatico and Bart and Homer are and they're often mm-hmm. those pairings are off doing their things together so when you get those unlikely pairings it can be it can really bring up some very very like compelling stuff Anyway, he says something like, he kind of, you know, breaks her stuff. And she's just like, okay, I'll get out, leave me alone. And he, and he says um, something like, I haven't seen it in a while, but something like, um, you're going to go out and have this, like, big, amazing life where guys like me serve the drinks. <laughs> you know? And it's so sad because it's like this thing of, of um, when you are a precocious kid or you're a kid who feels alone for any reason, which all kids have done, regardless of their intellect, it's like you do feel so alone. And then the idea that your parents would look at you and know that you're going to this place that is ultimately unreachable to them. And that is the mission of parenthood, is to advance your children onto a place where you can't go, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, so uh, that's what I mean. So it's where satire and sincerity meet at this perfect point. Um, that it's never too mawkish because mm-hmm. you have all these brilliant jokes and all this brilliant commentary. Yeah, absolutely. Um so today you're going to be taking us through your top five Simpsons characters. And I think one of the most remarkable things about The Simpsons is the sheer breadth of these indelible supporting characters that populate Springfield. Um, you are a writer yourself, mm. so you, uh, you know a little bit about sort of creating what, make, what makes sort of dynamic characters and, th- uh, and things yeah. like that. So to, will you please tell a layman? Yeah. How it works? How do they do this? I think the the I've gone to a point with Simpsons in me where I I've, I don't really watch it for the comedy anymore, but I do watch it for the writing mm-hmm. as as a fellow writer, and and it amazes me on that regularly. But it's um I do, like the secret to any good character and what they do so brilliantly is is sort of conflict, isn't it? It's um having having these two motivations that that are so strong and complement and oppose each other. Like a, a brilliant example is Principal Skinner. Mm-hmm. Um, this thing of like this guy who was like this extremely strict principal who was also in the army. And like, obviously if you were to have any other shows, like the principal of the school used to be in the army and you would be like, Oh, so he's really disciplined and orderly and, and, mm-hmm. and this and that and the other, and he runs it like a military and the lesser writers would leave it at that mm-hmm. but then the fact that he's also this incredibly henpecked nervous man yeah. who is afraid of his mother and, and all that and like he has all these like disturbing war flashbacks mm-hmm. but ultimately he's just like you know wants to get home in time for silhouette night with mother you yeah. know yes yeah and it's that it's that um, collision that they have with every character and, and basically even the most minor side characters have them like even Sideshow Bob who, who comes in and out and is often missing for seasons at a time. Mm-hmm. Is this the thing of like like the criminal who's also you know this aesthete is is like amazing and loves yeah. opera and and uh, I I do think the mark of any good character whether it's in books and whatever and I I do this when I'm writing it's like and it sounds so pat but like could that person have their own novel and like I think all of these characters could have their own novel you know mm-hmm. could be the protagonist of any story you know yeah. Because the psychology is that deftly written. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to give them their own novel today, but yeah. we are going to give them their own 10 to 20 minutes mm. of dissection as we go now into your 
top five yeah. favourite Simpsons characters of all time. So shall we kick off with your number five choice? Number five is a very sentimental choice. Mm-hmm. It's Fat Tony. <laughs> <laughs> is that a sentimental choice? It is for the reasons I'm about to say. So Fat Tony is um, he's the mob boss of Springfield. He's the head of the mafia. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone will know what he looks like. He's a kind of a, a fat little guy with grey hair and big bags under his eyes. Yeah. Um, he's also my first crush. <laughs> Sorry, you're like like a se- romantic. As in, as in, like crush. you know, you know when you're a very small child and you just find yourself drawn to characters and you, you, yeah. you it's not like sexy, but like you're you want to see more of them and they make you feel differently to the other characters do. Okay. That was definitely Fat Tony for me. <laughs> And I think it's okay. He's <laughs> one of the least. I mean, other than maybe like Hannah's moment, he's maybe the least sexualized <laughs> character in the whole thing. Yeah, I know. I know. I don't. I don't totally get it. I think it's the sort of like being. You, you know, when you're when you're growing up in the nineties. You know, it's the it's it's the great time for it to be a Scorsese bro, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously, I wouldn't have seen any of those movies as a child, but um. There's kind of a lot of mob type references just kind of around in the ephemera and um, there's something exciting about Fat Tony because every time we see him he's there's always like something of the night happening it's always yeah. like very underworldy which and everything's always very dark and he's in these like very lush but secluded surroundings he's got his henchmen and it's also it's a lot to do with the voice it's a good voice it's so soothing and, and menacing at the same time yeah. do you fancy Tony Soprano? yes yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people do. Yeah, I think a lot of women do. I think basically the show, uh, the, the the Sopranos really trades on that of just like um, I mean that's the thing about it is yeah. because everything that that guy does on that show is repugnant, but he is a, attractive. He's an yeah. attractive character that you actually want to spend time with, even if he's you know. Well, all of the awful things that he does, not not not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. And as and Fat and Fat Tony's kind of what like. Came first, Fat Tony are. I guess Fat Tony came first. Fat Tony first. must have come first, yeah. But Fat Tony is very much a blueprint for that character because it's the idea of someone. I like, think they're probably he's probably the closest. Yeah. To t- Tony Soprano in in yeah in, in that in, mob oeuvre yeah yeah. 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 Um, the idea of somebody who's like very violent but very gentle. Mm. Kind of thing. Yeah. That's the kind the sort of like. The measured, and I know it's supposed to be playing on the Marlon Brando thing, but Tony, uh, yeah. Fat Tony's a bit younger. Mm-hmm. Um, of that thing of my wife, she says, "Where's the money? When am I gonna get the money? Why isn't it have the money?" Kind of thing. That that way of speaking, and I always f- felt weirdly jealous of that episode where Bar goes to work for the mob and he like fixes the martinis and stuff. And that's where you, yeah. Oh, he's like parking their cars. Yeah, it's well, very it's good fellas. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's yeah. very much a good fellas like pastiche, but I wouldn't have known that obviously. No. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's not even that I have like these grey quotes or like, there's a bit, actually episode we just watched where Marge gets into pretzels and, and Homer and this, the Marge, the, the, the mob to help her sell them where Homer says to Fat Tony, it's like, Fat Tony, you, th- you mean the mob helped me just because, <laughs> just because it wanted something in return for Fat. shame. <laughs> Fat Tony. Yeah, Fat. Oh, Fat Tony. I was like, he goes, okay. It's something about his, it's, it's just the delivery that, okay, I will go. <laughs> so and it's such a weird voice. Weird, like, very low and bassy, but also clipped. It's like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's so, it's so hard to do. Yeah, it's, 
<laughs> Where is the money? Yeah, like, am I going to get the money? You know? yeah. I would so, whoever does the voice for Fat Tony, I would just love an audio book. Just like just like he should be read. He should just like read some kind of read like the old man of the sea or something. Even oh yeah, oh, oh yeah. So I was thinking like a gangster's memoir, but no, just yeah. anything in that. Just like a, like a Hemingway book where the shorts are the sentences are very short yeah, and clipped. Call me Ishmael. <laughs> It's just like, yeah, yeah. I, I want Moby Dick. I want all of the great masculine classics done by the guy who does Fat Tony. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I would uh, you know, put it on the cam app, you know, put it on Headspace. Yeah. I, I, I like it very much. <laughs> or you'd like him to do, or maybe maybe he could do some kind of like sleep meditation yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's, just, it's the most sonorous, sonorous thing. Yeah. I remember the, the, the writer Laurie Moore uh, wrote a very funny column that drove people absolutely fucking insane uh, for the New York Times where she said... Um, I hate Trump, but I love his voice. <laughs> and I kind of got what she meant, you know, because Trump has a kind of a similar, like, kind of a whisper register that he does sometimes. It's that, yeah. No, yeah, I, I, I can absolutely see it. So, um, okay, so... I don't know if I have anything terribly deep to say about the character, which is why he's my number five. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I considered not including him, because I'm sure I have more things to say about other characters. But the truth is that I get excited when I see him. Like, I just... <laughs> because I remember responding to him as a five-year-old or a six-year-old, and just, and like, there's something about him that I just feel very connected to, just because, like... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was like, want, want to be held by large fat Tony. <laughs> <laughs> my wife was whacked for natural reasons. <laughs> my, 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 my wife was whacked of natural causes. <laughs> yeah, it oh could have been you. Mm. Yeah. Could have been me, yeah. And I also like, um, I like when fat Tony and Mayor Quimby are sort of like offset against each other. They're actually very similar characters in a yeah. way. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like sort of Batman and the Joker, isn't it? It it's is, yeah. The same coin. And sometimes they sort of work together, and sometimes they and they they're they're always sort of thing. If like if if the Sims, if the plot requires it, things to be dissembled very quickly, it's mm -hmm. because Fat Tony and or Mayor Quimby and or a combination of the two of them has gotten in. Yeah. And, and like I'm just gonna add Mayor Quimby in here as an aside, but I yeah. just because I don't have much to say about him. But again, I just like it when I see him. Mm -hmm. I like how he's sort of this kind of bloated Kennedy sort of thing yeah. and the way that he's always referred to for a reason we never find out why as mm -hmm. Diamond Joe Quimby <laughs> <laughs> and I find that is so gorgeous I love that no, I think you're right though if JFK had lived he would have become yeah. Quimby yeah. yeah yeah and the which is just so corrupt and uh, yeah. and, and, he's, and he, he speaks like well, no, it's only, yes, that's, well. that's yeah. what it's supposed to be Diamond yeah. <laughs> Diamond <laughs> Joe Quimby <laughs> Why? We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so number five is uh, the uh, the confusingly sexy. Yes. Fat Tony. Arrestingly sexual. And it's, it's the, he wears all black and he's got his little bracelet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why does he use a bracelet? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's your number five. Mm. Let's move swiftly into four. Another powerful man. Another powerful man. I believe it's Ken Brockman. It is. Again, and I'm, I'm, I'm the, the 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 lower half of this list is very much people who I just feel psychologically drawn to and don't have like a ton of quotes. Okay. And Ken Brockman, I'm psychologically drawn to him um, because I think his his purpose in this show, for definitely the many seasons, is just very like they need the news to make a thing to, like, they, to make the plot happen. It's basically. like an ex expositional role, really. Expositional role, exactly. Like the Simpsons, like you know. A, the most based, like, we open on The Simpsons watching TV, Ken mm -hmm. Brockman will announce something. Yeah. And then that will drive the plot forward. Mm -hmm. But as the years went on, they start sort of illustrating his broadcasts 
um, with such just insane detail. And like, this is one bit that always makes me fucking laugh. It's uh, it's like uh, he's he's covering some something like a parade or something downtown, and he's speaking into his earpiece. He said, um, "It's like, ladies and gentlemen, I have covered Afghanistan, Vietnam, and something else or whatever. It's like, and I can." categorically say without hyperbole this is a million times worse than all of them put together <laughs> without hyperbole and I love what I love about him is that he's so like, because I guess because I, I uh, you know grew up wanting to be a journalist and really idealising that kind of all the president's men idea of what journalism is this kind of noble thing of like serious men in serious suits with serious faces which Ken Parkman really, really has yeah um, he really has that esteemed kind of newsreader face, and uh, and you see him sometimes like at his typewriter, and something about him at the typewriter. I love seeing him in his home moments, even though they're so yeah. rare. Does yeah. he have little glasses, or am I just imagining like on a on a string? Yeah, he has a little chain, I think. Yeah, and you see him like like a full ashtray with the typewriter, or whatever, and just the idea that he writes his own broadcasts, I think, <laughs> I find very arresting. Yeah. And there's this bit where he's with his daughter. It's the Malibu Stacy episode where uh, Lisa has her own doll that she makes. Is that the "Don't Ask Me, I'm Just a Girl"? Yes, episode? yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and the and there's something like his daughter who looks like like insanely like him. Mm-hmm. It just uh, comes and like, "Daddy, talk about my dolly." He's like, "Oh well, you were right about the war war." <laughs> <laughs> and I just love it. And that that, um, that phrase that, that is the most is like that everybody remembers is uh, Homer is in space. And the ant farm on the spaceship, <laughs> on the rocket rather, blows up and the ants come up to the screen. Yeah. And then just Brockman immediately jumps to, you know, I see now that it has been taken over by some kind of alien race. I for one welcome our new, <laughs> our new, yeah. yeah. So I, I kind of, um, I, I, I feel like him and Krusty... Mm-hmm. The clown. Um, they are also if if like Fat Tony and Mayor Quimby are a dichotomy, then so are Krusty and Brockman, mm-hmm. and they're in that they're the two main like showbiz figures of Springfield. Mm, yeah. And Krusty wants endless love, and Brockman wants endless respect, mm-hmm. and he wants to be a, like a real journalist or whatever. And uh, but the sort of the the downfall is that he is just a just a weak man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. a weak, weak man who is just so easily spawned in any situation and. It's always when, whenever he's reading those broadcasts, there's, and again, it's what I said earlier on about um, what The Simpsons is willing to throw away. It'll be like these tiny little asides within his broadcast that will just absolutely send me. Cause, and they'll send me over the edge because this is the millionth time I've watched this episode and only now am I noticing this. Like yeah. Earlier on, we were watching one and, and it's when Mr. Burns goes broke and he says... Uh, uh, now in in our um, in our I'm glad it's happening to you category, <laughs> and it's just it's the I think I love Ken Brockman because there's so much about him you could miss, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, yeah I just I again I just respond whenever I see him. Great. So number five we have Fat Tony, mm-hmm. the lovable uh, gangster, yeah. and number four we have Kent Brockman, the. Uh, Contemptible. <laughs> Contemptible journalist, yeah. Journalist. Who are we going to go, go with for number three? Number three, I thought long and hard about this because I wanted to include one of the child characters. Mm-hmm. And there's too much to talk about with Bart and Lisa, I think, because they could all have their own yeah. podcast, really. Um, I so, would love to hear Bart Simpson's podcast. 
<laughs> yes. Uh, do you remember the Bright Simpson Guide to Life? Did you have that? I did, actually. And they had this... Um, it's very, very important to me, the Bart Simpson's Guide to Life, because he had, like, lies that your parents told you on a page, and he, was, and he, and he dispelled some lies that pa- your parents tell you. And one of them was, cracking your knuckles will not give you arthritis. And I really hope that that's true, because I'm, I'm a big knuckle cracker. Really? And my parents... And, and, then, and then I went through great pains to try and stop, because I'd been fed all these fear-mongering stories. And then mm-hmm. I read that and was like, well, they couldn't... They couldn't say that. They couldn't put it in a book. They couldn't put it in a book. So I've been gleefully and carelessly cracking my knuckles every day for the last 30 oh, years. Oh, good for you. And I really hope that Bart Simpson didn't do me dirty on this. Yeah. yeah. I, I always think whenever... Because every now and then, a few years, I'll find it in a second-hand bookshop and I'll pick it up and I'll inevitably buy it for someone and give it to somebody. Yeah. Um, and I always look at it and I'm like, why? This book, everybody had it. Every kid had it. Yeah. It was so huge. Everyone loves it. Everyone remembers different passages of it. I always remember the bits of um, the uh, the bedrooms, the dream bedrooms. I just pour over that bit. Um, but like, why wasn't there more of books like that? Why weren't there, like... What? Do you mean like, more Simpsons characters, like Lisa's he... Guide to Veganism or something? Or... Yeah, maybe. Or like, But why wasn't there more sort of like essentially picture books for older children that were like irreverent and and yeah. felt like contraband mm-hmm. yeah. you know because it did feel sort of illegal or something that book to be a 10 year old yeah and have yeah. like this book that was yeah there's something that is something that's so true I think it's really missing and I've worked you know around kids publishing for a while now and it's not there's no thing there's nothing like it I don't know why, why it is that The Simpsons does or at least did certainly at that time still feel a bit dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Even though it was absolutely saturated within the culture, with the video games and the comic books, uh, like, like yeah. the weekly magazines and things like that, but there is... I think a lot of it had to do with the sort of, um, what is referred to as the Bart mania of the mid-90s. Well, Bart is a real subversive character, isn't he? Yeah, I guess, yeah, I think so, because it's that thing of, like, like Dennis the Menace, but more. And, um, and I think as well, for kids, he was a big thing because he never learned, mm-hmm. really, from his... Le- there wasn't, like... Yeah. There was really no corrective influence and like he would have the least of the emotional moments, I think. Well, there are some. Bart gets an F is the famous Bart one. Bart gets an F. The very early one, I believe. I find that's that one very emotional. It's probably the most emotional, maybe. I, uh, yeah. I remember that it when I watched it and I was young, I Bart's age or younger, Yeah. it really, really, I was younger than Bart and it really upset me when he's yeah. crying. He's like, I tried so. I know, I know. I find it really upsetting. I think I think of it as a as a big reference to one of my books actually. As in, I I thought a lot when I was writing my first YA book because I was very, mm-hmm. I really wanted a character who was categorically bad at school and it didn't matter how much they tried kind of thing. Yeah. Because like I think it's important to show that that it's like sometimes it is about knuckling down. Yeah. But sometimes they're just not. That's just not your skill set. You know. All our hidden gifts available in uh, your local Waterstones and all major bookshops. Thank you, thank you, dearest. Um, but we're not talking about. We're talking about. Somebody who does try a lot and does get it. Number three, I'm putting in Martin Prince. Martin Prince. The yeah. irrepressible Martin Prince. The irrepressible... That is the exact word for him. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love him so much, that he is irrepressible. It's yeah. um, uh, the One of my favourite writers, Danny Lavery, used to do these little psychological profiles of Simpsons characters, lesser known Simpsons covers. Um, and he, he said about Martin Prince, you can't keep a good man down. <laughs> And that's very much his vibe. Like, I think what's great about Martin is he's 
everything that everyone hates about Lisa, but more. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just as intelligent as he is, but he doesn't wear it with the, the grace or the kindness that Lisa is able to do. And Lisa, at the end of the day, even though she is the smartest child of her generation, can still laugh at a chin scratchy. And that's why mm-hmm. we still love her. And that, but like, Martin has really no good instincts. Does, does the existence of Martin Prince allow Lisa? to flourish as a character. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think I think yes. Because we've always always got that comparison to make. Every time yeah. it's just like, oh, Lisa's, you know, preachy or pretentious or whatever and yeah. it's like, but she's not Martin Prince. Yes. Yeah. 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 We, she he allows us to see that her instincts are are good kind of thing. Yeah. And and because he is such a like a weasel, yeah. it, it's when he's is most adorable really. It's when it allows you to sort of forgive him and not despise him. Like there's this bit where um well, I love it. You often get a Nelson Muntz Martin team up. Mm-hmm. Uh, this bit where I can't remember what they're doing, but uh, Nelson defends Martin to somebody, and then then Nelson uh, Martin follows Nelson home, singing a song for him. Like la It's like hark the tale of Nelson Muntz and the boy he held so dear. They remain the best of friends for years and years and years. Are you the voice of Martin? <laughs> Maybe that's why, maybe because I can do that voice. I, I like him so much. And, um, uh, yeah, there's, there's a moment as well during A Treehouse of Horror where, like, they're all telling scary stories. And Martin has come dressed as Calliope, the goddess of music. <laughs> and he's just wearing her fairy costume or whatever. And, like, uh, it's just... Um, oh, my God. But he's he's... I think that is a character that is... <laughs> richly complex as well because it is yeah. this thing where he's like desperate for a male for, for um it's the thing where he's desperate for adult approval because the approval of his peers is so obviously yeah not not, not gonna cards. happen yeah and uh and so he's like this like irrepressible suck up and and uh that thing of like when Bart brings the dog to school and, and the teacher feeds the dog her, the raisin roundies that Martin baked and just like his <laughs> disgrace his like his like pudgy face disgrace and yeah. everything it's so funny and like when he gets the pool and he calls himself the queen of summer yeah and like he, he wears like 16 bathing suits so nobody can steal them all and they steal them all kind of yeah, thing yeah, yeah yeah it's like he's, all, he's just always like hoisted by his own petard mm-hmm. in his own words um, I love all of the episodes where it is the kind of the kids going on an adventure without the parents like the mm-hmm. the lemon of troy and uh oh, yes. it's so good and um, i i love when they just like run like a, it generally tends to be bart millhouse nelson and martin because mm-hmm. they do kind of round out that perfect sound by me kind of thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and it, it just it's it's just kind of perfect when it happens yeah 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 and the thing of like that Simpsons gets right of how child groups actually interact is that you do have these things where you, you have your main best friend in school and then every and you have your enemies and your rivals or whatever but every so often you'll kind of gravitate towards them and have sort of these lone days when you're pally with them or whatever and they they go away again you know yeah yeah also I think in while we're on the subject of just like memorable kid characters you can't really not talk about Ralph Wiggum Ralph Wiggum again. I, th- I think Ralph is more Maybe the antithesis. Ra- Ralph is the, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, he's like, you know, he's literally the antithesis. It's yeah. like the two sides of the 
Well, yeah. no, it's not two sides of the same coin. It's like the two ends of the spectrum. Two ends of the spectrum of reject children. Yeah. Yeah. One of them who's like like too clever, too much, too in your face, too uh, mm-hmm. precocious, um, too. F- I think what's so interesting about Martin is the fussiness of him. Like he's like um he's got like a little Wendy house and everything, mm-hmm. and everything is just soaked in a feminine little boy thing mm-hmm. and everyone's known a little boy like that or whatever and then Ralph on the other spectrum is just a fucking idiot <laughs> <laughs> but an idiot in a way that is really recognisable I think yeah just like a kind of um it's like when, you, when you're when you if my mother was you just, know, just an absolute and true innocent yes yes I th- yes exactly that's it I always just think of the the immortal line Principal Skinner and Mrs. Krabappel were in the closet making babies, and I saw one of the babies, and the baby looked at me. And then, <laughs> then his dad replies, "Baby looked at you." <laughs> the baby <laughs> looked like, at like, you. There's a police That's line the on. thing. Yeah. This is something we were talking about earlier on, but I want to touch on it now. Is that I love um, the the Simpsons families that we see, mm-hmm. the ones that aren't the actual Simpsons themselves. Like the Wiggums I find very dear yeah. because they're really happy. They're really dumb and they're really happy and they have a nice house and like his mum says and does almost nothing but she kind of makes noises. Was it Sarah Wiggum? Sa- <laughs> Sarah Wiggum. And I remember this is Beth I've always, she's like, she's always like, I think she has like literally no dialogue and she just goes, just yeah. <laughs> she makes these weird like pig noises yeah. at him and he clearly, they they adore each other yeah. but there's this bit where and I can't be thinking of this but like um, uh, Wiggum is swiping some evidence like a, a diamond necklace from the evidence locker yeah. to bring it home and one of the cops is like oh you're bringing that home for your wife chief he goes, he goes yeah She's a nice lady. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, they're such a happy unit. And then you put them against um, the Van Outens, who are just so mired in tragedy. They're yeah. like um, they're like something, a piece of literature from the 50s or something. Do you know what I mean? You know, like yeah. one of those Richard Yates stories where it's like, <laughs> oh, the divorcing family and the insecure bedwetting son kind of thing. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And his, his dad is just so pathetic and his mom is so kind of over it and she's been taken in by the kind of the go-go 90s as she yeah, says yeah. And, and yeah I, just love, I love I love how when you see those families together because you can so see them as if you were seeing people who live on your own road mm-hmm. like oh the, I can see how those two people made that person you know yeah no absolutely yeah so your number three is the irrepressible Martin Prince mm-hmm. let's move swiftly on to your number two choice for Simpsons for best Simpsons character Caroline who is it? It's Monty Burns. <laughs> Aren't you that guy that everyone hates? <laughs> no. no, I'm Monty Burns. <laughs> Can you direct me to the Burnsos? Um, the I fucking love Mr. Burns. Yeah. Uh, I, I I love him because I love the um, once again I love when Simpsons sort of references these eternal characters, and I think uh, I once heard one of the um, writers say in an interview that you could probably piece together the Godfather scene for scene by going combing through all of the Simpsons because it's been referenced so much so many times mm-hmm. that you could probably recreate the entire film start to beginning start to end and I think you could do the same with Citizen Kane with yeah. Mr. Burns' scenes mm-hmm. um, the idea of the sort of like the old industrialist like kind of yeah. crumbling away in his old mansion I think they literally do that scene they do what do they have a Citizen Kane episode don't they which is the they have one. two yeah oh right yeah the one the, first of all the one with Bobo the bear which mm-hmm. is the whole thing with Rosebud and, mm-hmm. and and all of that 
Um, and then they have this the whole musical number from Citizen Kane, where they, it's um, you know, they have a kick line kind of yes, thing. Yes, yes, yeah. It's Monty oh, Burns. Oh, He's yes. worth twice of what he earns. It's Monty Burns. Yes, that, oh, yeah. that's Mr. Citizen, Burns. That's yeah. from Citizen Kane. Yeah, 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 yeah that yeah. whole sequence. Yeah, yeah, is is almost like beat for beat, shot for shot. It's Charlie Kane. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And like literally. They've the care they've gone to in that sequence to just recreate like, every dancer, every movement, every mm-hmm. like thing, which I find just delicious. And if like, you're into kind of classic cinema, it's just very yeah. rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I love, so I love that stencil kind of thing. I love any time we're inside Burns's house and there's another ridiculous room that's been revealed or another ridiculous <laughs> side of his wealth that's been revealed. But what I love even more is um, Mr. Burns with his coat off, like. Oh, why? oh, when he's down to his shirt sleeves. When he's down to his shirt sleeves, you know some real shit is happening. Mm-hmm. Like there's, you know, in the... Because um... <laughs> he's vulnerable. If you're ever seeing Mr. Burns' forearms, you're seeing him in a weakened state. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he's like thin little forearms. He's so he's so old. And like, what I, what I find... Something that like, um, uh, my boyfriend says to me a lot is that um, you're, you're too... You're t- <laughs> You're too permissive of the elderly and it will be your undoing. Wow. <laughs> because I am I am frequently I'm somebody who like uh will get extremely guilty and upset. And I'm not saying this uh to try and make myself sound like a nice person because I don't think I, I'm great. But I get very guilty and upset at the thought of an elderly person who like might not, you know, talk to someone today and mm-hmm. you have to be nice to people. And so I will frequently be made into an old person's bitch. Yeah. <laughs> like the lady who lives next door. Cow, but <laughs> absolute cow. Okay, let's hope she doesn't listen to this. I hope she doesn't listen to this. She's frequently awful to me. She's awful, and uh, but I I do things for her, and she's mean to me. And Gavin just laughs and laughs. <laughs> and I and that and I think it's a lot because like I was very very close to my grandfather. Um, but uh, whenever it's the same thing. Whenever Monty Burns is in a vulnerable position. Mm-hmm. I forget everything horrible about him. I'm just like, we have to protect him. <laughs> so like when he loses all of his money for good reasons, because he's a horrible person. Yeah. Um, and then he has to take the bus and he's in the supermarket and he... Like doing normal things that, that for instance, you do. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. Like, but he can't, can't handle them no. because he's too old and he's too sheltered. He doesn't know how the world works. He's been so um, yeah. cloistered. And he's like, ketchup, 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 ketchup. ketchup. <laughs> and, um, what is catsup? Is it a thing? I've never understood. I think it's um some people is, with some some American dialects they say catsup, and I think that's what they're riffing on. Oh, so it's like it's the same product with two different. I think it's just some people pronounce ketchup catsup. Okay, and it's well, like a good comment on that. If you know better than we do about the yeah. ketchup catsup dichotomy, please write mm. in to uh, top five everything pod at gmail dot com. Thanks. <laughs> um. And uh, then he, like, he gets locked in the fridge and then, like, he's really confused and then the people from the old folks' homes sort of take him away. And every time that happens, even though I know Mr. Burns deserves everything he gets, I'm like, no. <laughs> no, not Mr. Burns! <laughs> and then there's another episode, a great one, called Homer the Smithers, where um, he... Smithers goes on a holiday and he doesn't want to be replaced by anyone too competent because he doesn't want anyone replacing uh, him in... Burns' affections. Smart. Smart. And yeah. so he gets Homer to do it and um, he acts like Burns says something horrible, drives him over the line and he punches Burns in the face. 
and then and then he just flees and he comes back and he looks through the keyhole of Burns' office and Burns has his shirt off and he's um has his blazer off and he's hiding behind a pot plant and he's just breathing really heavily. <laughs> I find it really hard to take. I feel so protective of him. Is that the moment that Homer cro- finally crossed the line for you? Oh, we should talk about Homer crossing the line. That wasn't it, no. No. But there's a real thing in the fandom when, when like, obviously you can't talk about The Simpsons without talking about the, the downfall of The Simpsons, which I think we're going to cover later. But there's a thing that the fandom talks about a lot, which is um, th- there being two Homers in the, in the run of The Simpsons. Interesting. And the first era of Homer is Puppy Homer, mm-hmm. and which is that basically a well-intentioned goof who can't do life right and gets things wrong, and but essentially loves his family, loves indulgence, loves celebration, is all kind of id or whatever. Um, and that's the Puppy Homer we all like. And Puppy Homer is the Homer that like is ridiculous, but can also sometimes wears those little half moon glasses and does his budgets. Do you know what I mean? Which I love <laughs> yeah. seeing. Um, but then they have the other Homer, which is jerk ass Homer, which mm-hmm. is just like a horrible man. Yeah. Who did horrible things. Is like, that sort of latter day Homer or is, or, or is it kind of, does, does it vacillate back and forth? It does vacillate for a time. It sort of struggles. And then I think latter day goes all jerk ass Homer. Yeah. And then it, mm-hmm. and I think his antics get a bit too crazy and they don't really sustain the plot at all. And um, I think an example people use is um, when Flanders has the leftorium that Homer yeah. kind of drives out of business almost, mm-hmm. kind of intentionally just to see him fail. And that is the, the writers often refer to that as being where they kind of lost the run of him and it just became a, a mean idiot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But no, I think... Uh, yeah, that that Homer the Smithers episode is like peak Homer because he's he's trying so deep so badly to get it right or whatever and it's just not working and this is the thing where he's trying to make Burns breakfast and it keeps exploding <laughs> then he's like making him eggs and explodes he makes pancakes and explodes or whatever and then he makes cereal his poison milk and cereal <laughs> and <it's just> <laughs> yeah. so good so, I love it so Monty Burns is. Prob no, I've had said definitely he's the villain of the show. Yeah, yeah, he is the villain of the show. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, and one of my favorite the thing about the Monty Burns plots is that because he's established as being sort of richer than God and more powerful, his the Burns centric episodes can take on this kind of amazing scope that is still very believable. Mm-hmm. Like one thing, one that I love that I always think I'm like, this is better than most movies about this subject matter, mm-hmm. is the Flying Hellfish episodes. Do you remember right. that one? Yeah, or episode, yeah. rather. Which is the idea that... Um, They're all part of like a group with some... It's like a buried treasure type thing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that um, Burns and Grandpa Simpson were in the same platoon, or whatever, in the army mm-hmm. in World War II. And they found this priceless art that they couldn't lift yet, they couldn't sell yet but they were going to enter into a death pact where the last person, you know, would be able to access the whatever, which is like so exciting yeah. as an idea. And then it gets to the point where there's another funeral and grandpa and Burns are the last ones left and they're trying to kill each other for the, to get the fortune. Yeah. I just think that's amazing. Yeah. As a plot. And I remember weirdly, and everyone kicked off about this, years later, Matt Damon and George Clooney did a movie called The Monuments Men. Which is the same story. Same story. And people were like, Grandpa Simpson did this. <laughs> Stop plagiarizing Grandpa well, Simpson. Because that's the thing. Isn't that the South Park thing? Simpsons did it. Mm. Which was clearly their frustration. Uh, it became, became like a running joke in South yeah. Park, but it, 
clearly from the frustration in the writer's room. Yeah. Like, oh, what if Cartman does this? Simpsons did it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, no, that is a real problem uh, that the Simpsons have uh, have created for other but writers. And for themselves, really. Because um, it's the thing of... I remember I was talking to somebody, I think it was my brother, because we talk about Simpsons a lot, um, is we talked about how crazy the episodes got and how it was always dependent when it got really bad and everyone stopped watching. Um, was they would either go to a different country for some weird reason and then it would just these really feeble cliches and stereotypes mm-hmm. they would just use and they weren't very interesting or it would be these totally pointless celebrity cameos that yeah. it wouldn't even be they would create a character for the cameo it would just be like and here's Lady Gaga kind yeah, of thing it's like it's Green Day it, yeah exactly which is really embarrassing but then we would all, then he said to me recently he was like well what would you do like, oh, he's written in a defensive way. No, he, no, he, more in a kind of, in an actually a respectful way of like, well, Caroline, you're a writer and sometimes a screenwriter. Like, what show? What would you do? And I wrapped my brains about it. And I was like, everything's been done. Simpsons did it. Simpsons did it. Like, so they've run out of runway themselves. Yeah. You know, which is why they should fucking pack it all in, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know anyone who still watches The Simpsons. Kids do. Right. Yeah, kids be racking it up on their iPads. Yeah. Okay. But maybe it's this kind of thing. It's like. Yes, I do think the quality has dipped enormously, but maybe it's just we all grew up and left Neverland. Do you know what I mean? And like, it's still it's still there. Kids are still watching it. Not as many. It's not as huge in the culture, but I think kids do still watch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only two-parter, as far as I'm aware, is the Who Shot Mr. Burns, where yes. he tries to block out the sun so that they'll be absolutely dependent on his electricity. Is that right? An incredible storyline. Yeah. Um... But do you know why that happened, that two-parter? No, I don't know the story. So the story of why that happened was um, the... I think Fox was being sponsored by Call Collect. So you remember Call Collect. It was that if you didn't have any money at a phone booth or whatever, you would go... Yeah, you would yeah. uh, basically call somebody that you knew and you would leave a short message saying, oh, this is Tom, call me back, kind of thing. And yeah. they would call you back. Or accept the charges or whatever. Yeah. And they needed a way to promote this and how they decided they would do it they would create a cliffhanger episode on the simpsons and you had to um you had to guess who did it and this would be like the end of the season end of the season and mr burns is shot who do you think shot mr burns place a collect call and you should say it really quickly into the phone kind of thing and that would get everyone aware of the collect call system genius marketing genius marketing absolutely genius and the prize was i think it was either 10 grand or uh you get your character would be into the show I heard that they did that a few times right they they created characters for competition winners yeah yeah and um, the person who won took the cash prize really of 10 grand rather than being in the Simpsons yeah fuck yeah but it was I think that was the first ever animated cliffhanger really right like I can't think of any others it's still not even really done yeah yeah Yeah. yeah. I mean I'm not really that into animated stuff other than the Simpsons yeah King of the Hill did a little bit which is a great show Um, but yeah Okay, so, <clears throat> just to recap. At five, we have Fat Tony. Mm-hmm. At four, we have Ken Brockman. At three, the irrepressible Martin Prince. Yeah. At two, Mr. Burns. Yeah. So, I think now, just uh, the law of numbers yes. suggests that we now have to do number one. Yes. Who, Caroline, is your number one Simpsons character of all time? Uh, anybody who has me on WhatsApp will be able to have seen this one coming. Uh, but it's Marge Simpson. Because she is my WhatsApp picture. <laughs> <laughs> Not just that, though. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, I'm, 
I've been in your house for the last day and a half. Mm-hmm. And you have a kind of like a... I'm going to describe it. I'm not going to describe it accurately and then you can correct me. But it's like a kind of gold leaf mural to Marge Simpson <laughs> hanging above your kitchen sink. Yeah, that's that's exactly how I would describe it. It is a gold leaf mural to, to Marge Simpson. Okay. Yes. So... What the fuck's up with that? What the dude? fuck's up with that? Okay, fair enough. It's an absolutely fair question. There's, there's, there is a little bit of Simpsons stuff around here. There's like yeah. a there's a port there's a thing upstairs. There's a, a Martin Prince needlework in the living room. It's, it's weird. It's, it's fucking weird. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, yeah. But part of it is people just get me things because they know I love it, and yeah. part of it is that I buy things because I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the Marge Simpson picture portrait, um. I got commissioned for myself after I published my first book, Promising Young Women. And the picture is specifically, it's Marge holding the Chanel suit that she finds for $99 in a uh, sort of a TK Maxx situation. Um, And first of all, I love the reason why that episode particularly, I love that episode because it's it's just the, it's perfect Simpsons that it's just like a perfectly reasonable plot of like Marge wants to join a country club, this dress has allowed her to and the kind of has allowed her this kind of access, and it's so well written, it's so funny, but it's this kind of thing of. I think, what publishing a book for me meant was I I just sort of like you, you got the Chanel suit yeah oh yeah my God. a little bit it was like a Chanel suit to me because I felt you know, on the outside of so many things for so long. Um, and I think you do when you have a dream like that, right? And mm-hmm. the thing about Marge Simpson is that she always has very little dreams. Um, and I guess having a book out is a big one. But I felt like I finally had it, you know? I you, finally, you had the suit. I had the suit, yeah. I had the thing that would... And it's, it's a stupid way to think about your life and it's a very insecure thing to do. I mean, like, this is something that gives me legitimacy now. And that's what you... I think when people dream of seeing their book in a shop, that's what they're dreaming of, is a certain degree of legitimacy of being like, I really I really mean something. I really did something, you know? And that, I think, is yeah. is the smart Chanel suit thing, you know? So we were discussing the Chanel suit earlier and it's just come to me as you were speaking. So I was trying to think of a way of extending this metaphor that we were talking about. Yeah. But the thing that's actually, the reason that's, that, that that wasn't one of the episodes that sprang to mind when I was thinking about my favourites was because of, of how painful it is. Yeah, all of like, Marge's episodes are very painful. And she's like, oh, we'll see you blah, blah, blah. and I'm sure you will, you'll be wearing that lovely Chanel suit. Like, you know, cause yes. She's only got one fucking suit. Yes, and the, th- and the thing that they've all noticed. like Everyone's noticed and has talked about it. Yeah, and they all think that she what thinks that nightmare. she's pulling the wool over their eyes, but really like everyone is like seeing what's happening here, and I'm sure you'll have a lovely new suit kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, they're they're just these women are just annihilating her she wants so desperately to be among them and when she first meets that person it always breaks my heart um where she meets so she meets this woman she went to school high school with but she used to be like a cheerleader or whatever and uh the woman is like oh marge have we never seen each other what's that about and she was like well we ran in very different cliques in high school you had your uh, yearbook committee and your cheerleading team and I had my home shoe repair class <laughs> <laughs> and it's like you get these like I think what what what, what really compels me about Marge is that thing of um, she's such a delicate flower mm-hmm. <laughs> she's so delicate and she's um, you know there's something a little bit shabby about her but really really beautiful and mm-hmm. the thing of like 
I think it's something really all these little details like her last name being Bouvier which is obviously it's very kind of like a flower like a yeah, yeah yeah and it was it was like Jackie Kennedy's maiden name or was it yeah right oh my god I don't yeah. Know. yeah I think so um and and that's kind of that's kind of mired in that sort of like elegant tragedy or something mm-hmm. and um the the thing of my, a big part of March's whole vibe is that her favorite Beatles member the Beatles is Ringo Starr and not only is he her favorite member but she spent all of her teens drawing painting oil paintings of Ringo and sending them to him yeah and there's something like I said this to you before but there's something so uniquely beautiful and tragic of the you know obviously there's nothing wrong with Ringo Starr he's a very famous man but like he is yeah. a, he is sort of the, the sort of the dud yeah. of the Beatles and everyone kind of knows it. Yeah. Um, and like when... You when got a, the dud. You got the dud. <laughs> <laughs> when somebody, you know, fancies the kind of the most unfortunate member of the boy band, it, it really says a lot about them. It kind of means that they sort of... They're, they want to love something that's the least loved so that their love matters more. Is that know? an archetype within girl culture? It is. Like, like, so in a friendship group, there'll always be someone who likes like, like the ugly member of the boy band. Yeah, yeah, always. Yeah. It's a real thing. Um, I think it is a real thing in girl culture, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's just so much. There's just so much to her. I think th- there's always a lot of episodes where Marge pursues a tiny dream, and it's it'll be like uh, Marge wants to paint, and so she she goes and she joins a painting class, and then she um ends up painting Mr. Burns, uh, naked. Yeah. Which is a famous one, and she goes. Uh, everyone's sort of shocked by it, and she says this thing where she's like, you know, underneath his the snarling gaze and his, you know, piercing eyes and all this, there is a vulnerable creature who is perhaps not long for this world. <laughs> and it's just like, it really, it's like very sincere. And it's like, oh, like I don't yeah. know why, it just really gets me. And he goes, Marge, I know what I hate. I don't hate this. <laughs> um, and yeah. There does seem to be this thing though with Marge, where it's like, all she ever, as you say, they're humble dreams. And all she ever wants to do is just slightly elevate herself out of the role yeah. of being... The homemaker and the mother. Yeah. And at each time, just I think by the nature of having a kind of be, being a sitcom, they just have to do like a kind of factory reset on it. Yeah. And so, but the message seems to be is it's like it's like it's kind of like Thomas Hardy, Tess of the Devil thing. It's like stay in your lane. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah. It's really sad that like yeah, for it has to go back because it makes sense because Homer does crazy things like being the plow king of Springfield yeah, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. That it has to go back to normal and his like, Of course Homer wasn't going to be an astronaut for the rest of the t- rest <laughs> yeah, of the show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um but the fact that like oh why can't Marge be in the country club? Why can't she be in a play? Yeah. You know, what you know Because she has to still be Marge next next Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like just just her in her normal domestic role I find just lovely as well. And like I think a line everyone loves is when Bart's going to show and tell and she's like, Why don't you bring this potato? <laughs> like, Mom, you're always trying to make me bring potatoes. I just think they're neat. You know? <laughs> just the sort of there's some I don't know, I think she is again, if you I'm I'm catching this in if you grew up in a kind of a nuclear traditional family and traditional gender roles as you and I did. There's something that that they capture in Marge that is both so specific and so universal mm-hmm. of like just mum, you know, of like yeah. just you, you kind of know what she smells like, kind of like of sort of laundry yeah. and cooking, yeah. you know, and there's something well, she, yeah. comfortable about That's her. Just, uh, fundamentally, she makes me think of my own mother. Like, yeah, that's yeah. It. That's it. She's just the, like like the 
the Ur Mum. Yeah, and like the things that you do with Marge are so. The thing of like. There's so, it's such a tiny moment. There's a moment where like. Uh, Lisa and Marge come home from grocery shopping. They're like, we're back! And Lisa just is so happy and she's like, we got beets! <laughs> and it's so useless. So it's like, she's so happy, we got beets! And it just reminds me, there's all these things of like, you know, when you do little errands with your mum and it would yeah, just yeah. be the two of you. And, and you have uh, have fun in yeah. like a different way. In a, in a different way! Because you got beets. You got beets! <laughs> you can imagine immediately the things like, shall we get... Beats? Yeah, you can you can really see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, I love no, it. And that's I yeah. Um so the Simpsons family absolutely mirrors my own family. Like literally we Oh and makeup, yeah, that's true. So I uh, so make up three kids, <gasps> yeah. eldest son, uh, middle daughter, and then the youngest daughter. And baby, yeah. Yeah, and then and oh, Anna is Maggie. It, Ma- Anna That's is Maggie. So sweet. And, and when we were watching it, so which would have been like mostly like nineteen ninety nine, two thousand. I I I I think we were just yeah we were the same ages like at, yeah at the same you were thing. nine so yeah, yeah yeah I was like nine ten yeah uh, Kate was Kate Kate's uh, three years younger than me so okay maybe it's a, but, but yeah a, same, around, same a, thing around about. And so that was it. So we really just did always feel like, oh, they were just reflecting back. Yeah. Like, like, like oh, oh, this is the life that we're living. And so, and for me now, it's, I can't watch an episode of, um, I can't watch any of those, especially those main characters, do anything without just feeling like it's, uh, uh, f- f- well, feeling like it's a reflection of my, uh, of a member of my family. Yeah. Lisa is yeah. Kate. Yeah. You know? Mag- oh, Maggie and Anna, I mean, they're not the same because uh, Maggie is forever one years old and um, Anna is 25? I don't She's know. She's 25, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but no, still, nonetheless, it's like the Simpsons are as close to me as my own. Yeah, yeah. Skin, and it, it, you know, it's it, like no, that. It com- it's totally that. And I think that's why we feel so revolted by how they are now because it mm. just doesn't feel recognizable. I think as well because you watch those early episodes. Which who are of a family that are like your family, and you're with your family when you're watching them. It, it all absorbs into the same dynamic, and it's almost like their memories are your memories. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Like I feel that way. I, I you know, I'm a, the youngest of four, but my. You're Maggie. I'm Maggie. No, your baby. I'm baby. <laughs> um, but the it was kind of two sets of two kind of thing, in that my eldest brother and sister are close in age, and then there was a gap, and then there was me and my brother kind of thing. Right. Um. And so we definitely reflected that Bart Lisa dynamic of me being the kind of easy, awkward, bookish, and him being sort of uh, magnetic but chaotic, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the top five Simpsons characters of Caroline O'Donoghue as they stand are at five, Fat Tony, at four, Kent Brockman, at three, Martin Prince, at two, Mr. Burns, and at one, Marge Simpson. A, uh... I'm surprised by my own listing. I thought that I would. It's so it's weird that it's four male characters and then a female at the top. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that says about me exactly. Shit, feminist. Well, I mean, I think. I'm not sure of the um, the exact uh, DNA of the uh, Simpsons writers' room, but I think it is predominantly male. Yeah, yeah, always has been. And I think um, the the guest stars on The Simpsons, I think, gen- uh, sort of uh, lean towards the female, but they're sort of the, mm. the main recurring characters. Yeah, that's the thing. I was very tempted when I was putting this list together of like 
there's this incredibly rich one time only occurring characters like mm-hmm. um Hank Scorpio is a great one. <laughs> uh, everyone loves, obviously. Mm-hmm. Or um, the monorail guy or whatever. But I kind of wanted people who... Or um, <laughs> I have a big soft spot for Cookie Kwan, the, uh, real, est- the real estate agent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or actually, we might as well rattle through all the ones that the mm-hmm. also runs. Yeah. Um, I love Miss Hoover. Mm-hmm. who's Lisa's teacher with, yeah. the, with the glasses who kind of gets less airtime than Miss Krabappel solely for the one line when um, Lisa is trying to sort of uh, uncover the real legacy of Jebediah Springfield the town's founder yeah. and uh, she writes this essay about how he is a fraud and Miss Hoover says back to her this is nothing but dead white male bashing from a PC thug <laughs> <laughs> which was uh, you know and when was that episode uh, written? Early 90s. Because that's very... Very now! Of, very, yeah. very now. Very Twitter, very now. Mm, Dead yeah. white male bashing from a PC thug. <laughs> okay, so those are, the, those are your top five. I think we've actually probably talked about uh, more, more like 15 or 20 characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. And I'm glad of it because, I mean, really you could do... You you could do a dozen uh, top fives, never repeat mm-hmm. the same character like that because that is the I think that's one of the defining qualities of the Simpsons is, is the breadth is the yeah. breadth of uh, of these yeah of, 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 of great characters, and we've also talked a lot we've also talked quite autobiographically about sort of what it has meant to us and uh, how we came to the Simpsons and uh, what it meant to us as uh, when, when we were kids. How has your relationship with the Simpsons changed over the years? Do you think? I think. I definitely, it's funny because I, I never would have thought until a few years ago that um, The Simpsons was my favourite TV show. I think I, I liken it to um, chips a lot. Is that like, <laughs> you know, when it gets down to it, everybody's favourite food is chips. Do you know what I mean? In that like, mm-hmm. you know, when, they, when you order some for the table, when they come out, you're excited to see them every time. They're not, yeah. it's not a fabulously interesting. Nobody's going to say it's their favourite food, but in your heart. They're what yeah. it would, chips are what make you happy, you yeah. know, and that is the same with The Simpsons. So I obviously I watched a lot growing up, and then in my early twenties didn't watch it very much. Um, but always, you know, you always have those people in your life who will always quote it with you and kind of keep it alive for you, even though you're not watching it. Mm-hmm. And then definitely since it became a streaming thing, watching it more and more. And now it was weird actually when we were watching episodes earlier on this morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was weird like being dressed and sitting upright watching it because for me it's like, you know, I might be a bit hungover and I've just ordered food mm-hmm. and I'm I'm sort of in my pajamas lying down watching The Simpsons kind of thing and yeah. it does give me that kind of cozy glow. And as I said before, I don't really watch it for like co- for like comedy now. I'm just fascinated by the writing of it and I, I can get quite dweeby about the the writers and like the different eras and when people left and when people came in and when when exactly the downfall came and all that mm-hmm. stuff, you know. So on that, where did it all go wrong for The Simpsons? When does the downfall begin and why? There's a lot of competing narratives on how and when The Simpsons went downhill and how it got so awful and everything and I think people are routinely still annoyed by it kind of thing it still really upsets them that the down the downturn quality was so sharp but it wasn't really sharp it was um it was a kind of an inclination thing first of all I think that like to talk about the Simpsons not being good anymore 
we have to sort of observe and acknowledge the fact of how good it was before and the fact that like what you had there was a very unique combination of people trying to impress each other and trying to make a TV show better than it needed to be. And that often moves me about any piece of work was like, so last night we watched an early episode and it's about a new neighbor who moves in next door and Bart has a crush on her and that whole um, thing plays out. And, you know, it's a good episode, but there's nothing that differentiates it from a normal family sitcom, which is that like, the children have a problem and then it's all resolved and it's quite suburban. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, it's, it's good, but the, the, the references aren't amazing. The jokes aren't amazing. And then I like watching it. I find it very satisfying as it goes on. You're watching brilliant people trying to impress each other more and more and making things, once again, better than it needs to be. Like mm. you, you, could have, you could have kept it at that pitch and at that level for a really long time and have had a really successful show. But the fact that like it stacks and stacks and layers and layers, it's almost like a great song or orchestra or something. And this thing of, I think, and I think this has been got looked into a lot as well of um a great a thing that Simpsons had going for it was that it was a family sitcom that had no laugh track mm. and like even if you think like if the Flintstones is a family animated family sitcom that had a laugh track which is weird to think about mm. adding a laugh track to animation it's a motherfucking cartoon yeah but because there was no laugh track prior the the, the kind of the sitcom world of laugh tracks meant that everything there was a feed line and a punchline and then a laugh, and then maybe a character would say, well, that was a bit blah, 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 and that's where catchphrases would come in, yeah. and that's how things became extremely formulaic, and that's how joke writing became very structured. But because Simpsons doesn't have that, you know, four-second laugh track thing, it allows for more jokes to fly under the radar, mm-hmm. like, so many visual jokes happening as well because it's animation, and, like, all of that flourished on this nexus point of just, like, some of the greatest art of the 20th century, I mm-hmm. think. And so when we're talking about going downhill, we have to remember we're talking about something going downhill from perfection. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know? And yeah. so it feels really churlish and unfair to, mm-hmm. to kind of attack people. But I do think what happened was, and there's lots of theories on this, and the kind of fandom often talks about the um, the season nine episode, The Principal and the Pauper, mm-hmm. which is a really great episode, joke-wise. And it's had, really funny. Yeah. It's really funny. And as we talked about at the beginning of the episode, it has that great thing that the best episodes do of the um, the sarcasm and the sincerity reaching the sort of same nexus point. Um, but even though it's a well-written episode, it the whole thing is Principal Skinner, who we've been watching for all these seasons, and we know so much about him and his mother and his relationship with Edna Krabappel and all that. Everything we know about him isn't true. And forget it. Because he actually stole somebody's identity and his real name is Armin Tanzarian. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the episode, they say, well, forget all that. We'll never mention it again. And it's what it's supposed to be is like this meta nod to the fact that everything goes back to the same. Mm -hmm. But I think it's sort of, it, it kind of trespassed on something there well it's the sarcasm taking over the sincerity yes yes and i think they i think they've just maybe misjudged like what people are really responding to in the simpsons which exactly. is which is which i think at, at, at like at a sort of fundamental level what we're responding to is the sincerity and then the sarcasm gives it a kind of, uh, gives it its verve, you know, it gives it, it's like, yes. it, that's like the flavour. It's, uh, yes. it's the and spice it's like on top. The, the balance got wrong or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because we were watching it, you know, you were, we were both really enjoying the episode. Both of us kind of looked at it like it ends on actually a very nasty note. Yeah. Because the whole thing, because the, the, the real Skinner 
isn't like a bad man. He's just a bit awkward and like he's, you know, yeah. was in a Chinese prisoner of war camp for years and whatever. Yeah. Um, and then they like just tie him to a train and run him out of town. And he's yelling, but I'm a hero. Yeah. And he's like, and we salute you for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's just a little bit too cynical and it kind of leaves a bitter taste in your mm-hmm. mouth. And I think that pattern continued from there, there. There was a thing relatively recently when they were called out for the... Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. The regressive stereotype of a poo. Yeah, yeah. And other characters. Yeah, yeah. and they had to kind of... And, and they had to address it, but they addressed it in this, like, really arsy way. Yeah, yeah. Which was, like... like, It's not a wink to the camera. It's more like a kind of, like, middle finger to the camera where it's just yeah. kind of like... Um, and this is it as well. You're really getting to something there, which is that when you begin in a place of being anti-establishment because you're um, rejecting all the stereotypes and structures and joke patterns of familiar like family sitcoms and what we expect from animation, you are you know anarchic and different even though you're mainstream. Mm-hmm. And that was a thing to celebrate with Simpsons. And now it just is the establishment. Now it is the sacred cow to be taken down. It doesn't really know what to do with that. Yeah, so so it applies that. Uh, so it applies that same kind of. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I guess it's it's a reverence or it's anti-establishment ethos yeah. to criticisms that are coming from what 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 is the, what is the new anti-establishment right? So, yeah. so it's it's the challenges now. It's like you know. For so John Cleese, really. Like it's like John Cleese, yeah. or it's like like Johnny Rotten. Uh, yeah, yeah, all, yeah, yeah. All this stuff where it's now just like, yeah, it's like Johnny Rotten is basically a shill for the Conservative Party now. It's like. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and it's that, it's the thing of living long enough to see yourself as the villain because you do yeah. become this um, sort of relic of yesteryear that people reject. And because you've um, made your name out of rejecting norms, you think you're being rebellious by rejecting criticism, but actually you just seem like a fucking stuck pig, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Like just an old crotchety man, which is, I feel like what Simpsons feels like to us now. Yeah, exactly. You know, where the, the joke writing isn't good enough to mm-hmm. outweigh the criticisms, you know? And I just don't understand why the Apu thing, why they couldn't have addressed it sooner. Do you know what I mean? That thing of like, because it's, Obviously, there are lots of problematic jokes about Apu, and it's, and it, once again, not for me to decide what is or isn't offensive about their representation. But, like, on the whole, like, a pretty rounded character who we all, importantly, we all loved. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And we cared when bad things happened to Apu, and we, you know, we rooted to him and all that. And I think that great episode um, where Homer sort of learns, he kind of votes against um, immigrants in Springfield or something, yeah. some kind of proposition. And then he realizes that his actions have affected someone he, you know, depends on and loves dearly, which is his friend Apu, and he's never made that connection before. And that's kind of an important lesson. But I don't know why they couldn't have just gotten an Indian voice actor like many other animations are doing. I don't... Yeah. Why not replace the character? Like, Hank Azaria already has much to do. It feels like... Well, no, it goes back to, I think, your your initial insight, which I think is absolutely right, and it's the kind of... Um, the touchstone of the whole thing, which is that the the sarcasm versus the sincerity, the mm-hmm. irreverence versus the sincerity, mm. and they've just lost the sincerity, and they've lost yeah. any kind of thing. But also, maybe it is not knowing their place in a world where South Park and Family Guy, who are basically rips off the Simpsons anyway, yeah. exists, and you can no lo- you're no longer the firebrand. You're the yes. establishment. Yes, and when it comes to like sincerity, so yeah, there's the the firebrand is now 
your Seth Rogen Family Guy and those are quite dated references the new would be something like Big Mouth on Netflix which is another animated show that's very mm. much um, takes on sacred yeah, cats Bob's and yeah um, but the sincerity stuff is being covered off by shows I would think like um, Parks and Rec and the US Office and mm-hmm. um, Schitt's Creek and all that stuff and I feel like yeah the sort of the satire and sarcasm is that those sort of quite nastier animated shows even though I like some of them for whatever reason, and then the sincerity is divided off into those other shows, but nothing is quite twinned mm-hmm. those two things the way The Simpsons has. Yeah, and probably never will. Yeah, maybe because Simpsons relied on an era where culture felt more compacted. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And like the idea, of like there were so many references to like things like Planet of the Apes or something, or like or so many like classic sort of. Cultural references. And maybe now that culture is more diffuse, it feels that's... harder to pull those things together. No, maybe? I, think, I don't yeah, know. I think that's it. I think it's like the ultimate monoculture kind yeah. of uh, product. Yeah. Yeah. And just And that's... And that's and, and that, that goes... And, and, and sort of that, that, that that's demonstrated in the fact that everyone, as you say, had the, the Bart's Guide to Life book. And yeah. everyone knew... Uh, and things, And it just... And just... The world... Do, that, that world doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, and, so, and I think when we get angry at the downfall of The Simpsons, we're really getting angry at that, at that culture just being so radically different to how it was when we were children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. You can never go home again. <laughs> <laughs> but, given all that, there is, uh, I think, a... I don't know, what is it, like a five, six, maybe a ten-year run mm. where The Simpsons is, as you, as you said earlier, basically perfect. Yeah. And... Uh, and to a certain extent, maybe ev- everything that's followed has tarnished that a bit, but maybe not. I don't think maybe if you create perfect art, then yeah. it stands as its own thing. So I guess my final question to wrap this all up would be like, for that period where The Simpsons was perfect, what what did it contribute to life as uh, life and culture yeah. and history and 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 what still kind of reverberates and resonates from that for you i do think i did say it at the top and i do think about it a lot i do think it is the thing of like it's where we go to find out what everyone knows and i mean that in terms of cultural stuff but i also mean that in terms of like like just just feeling and how we relate to one another you know that thing of some there's certain lessons in The Simpsons that we learn as children that um stay with us kind of forever. Like I think a lot about, you know, when, oh God, when um, Homer has a job at the bowling alley, mm-hmm. and this is like pre. This is about how 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 Maggie came to be. It's kind of like a kind of a storytelling episode, mm-hmm. and it's um he has a job at the bowling alley, and it's his dream job, and then Marge is pregnant with Maggie. And then he doesn't earn enough money at the bowling alley, so he has to go back to the power plant. Yeah. And you can, Burns puts up a thing in his, uh, in his office saying, "Remember, you're here forever." Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, and we all know it's so cliche. It's like a meme now, or whatever. But um, he puts up all these pictures of Maggie, and it says, "Do it for her." And. <laughs> And I think it's probably the first time as, as young people we would have realised, however small a way, that our parents make sacrifices for us, you know? And it's the same thing that I said with Lisa Substitute earlier on. The fact that our parents raise us knowing that the, the hope is 
that we will go on to a place where we they can no longer relate to us. And that's the dream of parenthood and how heartbreaking that is. And so when I say it's the place where we go to find out what everyone knows, it's like those, yes, it's like what the plan of the apes is and what all these things are, but it's also like the internal like, everyday like, heartache of life, you know? It's where that all gets laid out for us in a very simple and digestible way. Yeah, I think it provides, because it was ubiquitous, and because it was universal, I think it provides a baseline and a foundation from which, as we've discussed from the beginning, the um, the uh, w- whether it's references or whether it's archetypes, mm. all these things, it's just, I think, what I think we've lost, and I think we've gained an awful lot from having a kind of, uh, from moving away from the monoculture. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is really great because it means that everyone can find find their thing and mm-hmm. find their place, and I think actually that is more valuable than the Simpsons being good. Than, yeah. Well, than the Simpsons being good and everyone loving the Simpsons. Mm. But I think for our generation, it's it's given us a kind of foundation and a place to yeah and a home, and yeah. and a, a, and a cultural home and a cultural jumping off point. But I mean, fundamentally, it's uh, what it what it what it did was it was uh, it, it introduced everybody to high quality shit. Yeah, and this is just like yeah. high quality shit that everyone can enjoy, and so everyone knows what good is. That's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I think that's yeah, that's powerful and that that that's valuable, and I think that's probably where we'll end it today. So, I've been Tom McInnes. This has been Caroline O'Donoghue. Mm. Caroline, you got a book coming out. I do, yeah, yeah, yeah. All the time, always. Um, <laughs> there's always oh, a there's book always coming a out from Caroline book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what is it? It is called. It is the sequel to my young adult fantasy, uh, All Our Hidden Gifts. The, the book is called The Gifts That Binds Us. Yeah. Um, and so if you haven't read the first one, I would buy them together because you really need the second one to understand the first one. If you would prefer a more standalone adult experience, I have two books, the first of which is called Promising Young Women. The second is called Scenes of a Graphic Nature. Yeah. Um, I've read them all. I love them all. I think this new one is probably, no, but I'm going to say, is definitely the best yet. Really? It fucking rules. Uh, buy it. Even if you're like... Uh, that doesn't sound like my kind of thing. Trust me, it's not my kind of thing. But I loved it. So uh, do it, do it, do it. Um, this has been Top 5 Everything. If you'd like to get in touch to tell us how great it was, then uh, it's top5everythingpod at gmail.com. If you didn't like it, then just I, I don't want to hear about it, please. Just like, I'm, 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 I'm not... But our I'm address not... is sentimentalpod at gmail.com. <laughs> Um, yeah, so subscribe where you can, uh, review where you will, uh, and, uh, please tune in next time where we'll be talking about something completely different, but equally passionately. Thank you very much. Good night.